A few years ago, I started a, a nonprofit ministry uh, aside from the church. A few years ago, I started a parachurch organization called the Boston Center for Biblical Counseling. And it's something that I just don't talk about much in the church. And I'll, I'll explain that to you in just a minute for, for why I don't bring that up very often. I still, to this day, work a few hours a week uh, for the Boston Center for Biblical Counseling as their executive director. It's something I'm still really involved with and, very, uh, and, and I care a lot about. And the way that we got this thing started is when I was in seminary, I was trained in a method of counseling called biblical counseling. And the idea with biblical counseling is that uh, we're, we're going to prioritize ministry over psychology. There's nothing wrong with psychology, but what we're doing is, is more ministry than it is psychology. So it's like ministry with a little bit of psychology instead of psychology with a little bit of ministry. So that's the, the easiest way to kind of explain what our goal is and how we, we do it. So our whole methodology of counseling and everything is a good bit different than what it might be in a normal counseling situation. So I was trained in that sort of counseling, but then we moved to Boston and there was no one who was practicing it really, other than pastors. But sometimes as a pastor, you, you reach uh, a point where you aren't quite sure what to do with a congregant, and so you need to refer. And plus, people are asking for different counselors to be referred to all the time. And I just didn't have anyone that I felt like was embodying that style of counseling that I wanted to refer people to. Not that I wouldn't refer anyone to any other type of counseling, but this is what I was mainly looking for and what I mainly wanted to refer people to. And so one day I just got, got kind of angry because I had friends who were moving out of the city. They were moving to other places where they could receive the type of care that we were praying for and hoping for. I had lamented with other pastors about how we all were kind of longing for a counselor that fit this, this, uh, this description, who counseled in this sort of way. So I just got angry and I called the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation uh, in New England, which is up in Vermont. And I said, you call yourself a CCEF, Christian Counseling Education Foundation, New England, but you're all the way up in, uh, in, like in White Junction River, Vermont, okay? You're way up there. That's, you know, that's not very central to New England. You should move down to the hub of the universe and be a part of Boston. And you guys just move on down here. We'll, we'll get all your clients set up. You, you'll be good. And they say, oh, we're very happy in Vermont, thank you, as most people who live in Vermont do say. Um, and so I said, well, would you consider helping me get this thing started? And so they responded and said, yes, we'd love to help you get it started. So what we did is we invited every pastor I knew to a meeting, and we, listened, and we, and we just said, hey, guys, this is what we want to start. Will you give us your money so that we can go and hire someone so that we can get this thing started? And they did for one reason or another. They, everybody saw the need, so they did that. And we've seen tremendous growth with the Counseling Center over the past three or four years we started it. Uh, we started it about three and a half years ago. We've gone from one counselor, kind of taking whatever we could get, to now we have six people who are doing counseling with us. We have two administrative staff, myself included, and uh, so a, a team of eight staff, and we have, a, we have a, a, an office in Coolidge Corner. And it's a great ministry. I'm very thankful for it. But here's one thing. I don't like talking about it in church. And here's why. Because there's a great danger in having a counseling center like this. Even though it's a great resource, it's an awesome thing, it's something I'm thankful for. I think people are being cared for, lives are being changed, people are being reconnected with God, and that their, their relationships with the church are being helped. Those are all great. 
And I think the benefits outweigh the cons, but there's a great danger in having a counseling center like this because I think that there's a tendency for church people to want to outsource all of their problems to a Christian counselor as opposed to being open and sharing with their church community or with their pastors. I think that there's a danger in having this counseling center because we as the church might start outsourcing the care of souls that God has commanded us to do to these other people. And I think there's a danger because we as congregants, people who call ourselves Christians, start to neglect our responsibility to speak the truth in love to one another. And we start to think that change is only possible through a trained professional. And these trained professionals are important. I'm not bashing counseling. I would love for you to go. We'd love to help you pay for it. It's a great thing. But the Boston Center for Biblical Counseling, there's a danger that a counseling center like that might become a substitute for the church as opposed to a supplement for the church. It was never meant to be a substitute. It was always meant to be a, sub, a supplement, something that comes along the church, alongside the church. Last week, we talked about how God uses a diversity of spiritual gifts to bring maturity in the body of Christ. And the way that he does this is by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Now this week, he goes into a little bit more nuance about what it means to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if you'll look at the text, we're, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, still going through the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at verses 15 and 16. Read this with me, church. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when we think about this question, well, hold on, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, sorry about that. That last part wasn't part of the text, okay? Uh, when we think about this question, you can scratch that from this is the word of the Lord, uh, disclaimer, okay? Um, when we think about this question of how do we equip the saints for ministry, what goes through our mind when we think about the work of ministry? What is the ministry? First of all, who are the saints? The saints, when, it, when the Bible talks about the saints, it's not talking about a special class of Christian. It's talking about every Christian, Saints in the Bible is, is the word agios, which is um, holy ones. So he's just saying that, that every Christian who's been made holy by the blood of Christ, how do we equip them for the work of ministry? And when we think about what the work of ministry is, what do we think about? Oftentimes we think about things like feeding the poor. We think about things like community service. We might even think about service projects that we do within the church. We might think about what I do, how I'm called to preach. These are all works of ministry, and these are all good things. But when Paul says, equip the saints for the work of ministry, what he has in mind is none of these things, but rather he has in mind what verse 15 says. Speak the truth in love. We equip the, the, the saints for ministry so that the body of Christ might grow, and then he tells us to speak the truth in love. Why do we speak the truth in love? Verse 16, so that the body grow. 
It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love is the key to Christian maturity. It is the way that we grow as believers. And so today's passage teaches us this. Those who believe the truth speak the truth. Those who believe the truth speak the truth. Now, speaking the truth is not necessarily an easy thing. There's a lot of wisdom that goes in speaking the truth. Say you have a friend who has adopted some sort of self-destructive behavior. There's a lot of questions you have to ask for how you handle that situation. Do you tell them immediately that you, what, you, what they're doing is going to lead to their own destruction? Or do you hold it to yourself for a little while? Do you pray about it for a minute? Do you share it with a pastor? Do you, do you just kind of casually drop it? There's a lot of wisdom that has to go about with how we speak the truth and love to one another. And so what I want to do is look at this text. We're going to be answering just a few key questions. First, what does speaking the truth not mean? What does it not mean? Second, what does it mean? What does speaking the truth in love mean? And third, how do we practically do it? So first, what does it not mean? Let's dive in. So when Paul tells us, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He's giving us the key to maturity. But what he's not doing is telling us that we can point out every time that one of our friends is wrong. That's my natural inclination in life because I lack the social awareness to know when is appropriate and when isn't appropriate to tell someone that they're wrong. But it is not what he's giving us license to do. Speaking the truth in love does not mean that we get to drop truth bombs on one another. The church is meant to be a hospital for sinners, not a fact-checking factory. Sometimes we can use this verse to justify speaking the truth as a weapon. We glorify people who just tell it like it is and who say it how they mean it. But sometimes we just forget that last little prepositional phrase that's tagged on to speaking the truth. Paul tells us to speak the truth, but how does he tell us to speak the truth? In love. Friends, when we think about hatred, we oftentimes think about hatred being this overwhelming hot anger rage where we're over the top at somebody, mad. But biblically speaking, when you look at hatred, hatred is not this over the top rage. Hatred is wishing ill of someone else. It's taking delight in someone else's un, uh, unpleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings. And that really expands who you hate, does it not? Because many times we want people to get what they deserve. We want them to feel miserable. And we take pleasure in their feeling miserable. Why do we want them to feel miserable? Because they're wrong. And we're right. And it just proves that we're right because they're so wrong that they're miserable. Friends, that is biblically hatred. You hate them in your heart. Which Jesus expands to the level of murder. We are to speak the truth in love. We're not to drop truth bombs. We're not to wish ill on anyone else. There's a conservative talk show host named Ben Shapiro who has this really pithy saying. 
I'm not saying that everything he says is wrong. I'm not, taking, I'm not taking aim at him. I'm just talking about this one little phrase here. But he says this. He says, facts don't care about your feelings. That is so true. But you know what? Facts don't care about anything because facts don't have feelings. They can't care. It's this little quip that we use as a bludgeon to where we can tell other people that they're wrong without caring about how they feel. So while facts might not care about your feelings, in the church, Jesus cares about your feelings. And we care about each other's feelings. So we don't just throw truth at each other. We don't just lob truth bombs at each other. We speak the truth in love. Just because the scripture tells us to speak the truth to one another does not mean we have license to say anything that is true to one another. Because he tells us to speak the truth in love. So if that is not what we're supposed to do, we're not supposed to just say whatever's on our mind, whatever's annoying us, however someone else is wrong. How are we supposed to speak the truth in love to one another so that we can build up the body of Christ, so that we can reach full maturity? How does this work? First of all, let's think about this word truth. This word truth it doesn't just mean right things, correct things. It, does, it doesn't mean less than that, but it doesn't just mean that. Because when you look at how Paul uses the word truth in other places, you can, we can just even flip back to, to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, and then it says what that is, the gospel of your salvation. What is the truth that we speak to one another? But the gospel of our salvation. Speaking the truth in love to one another is not just correcting one another when we're wrong about random things, but speaking the truth in love to one another is speaking the gospel message of our salvation to each other. It's this loving, caring, kind type of thing. It's what God does with us. When we bring our problems to him, he speaks the truth in love. And sometimes that truth, it's very confrontational. And it says, stop what you're doing. It's self-destructive. And sometimes that truth is so comforting. It is a balm to the soul. Earlier this week, on Friday, I was having a, a kind of a rough day. And if you get the newsletter, you, you can put two and two together with what I'm talking about here. Uh, I'm not quite prepared to talk about it in front of everybody. Uh, sometimes things are easier to type than they are to talk about. So sign up for the newsletter, right? Um, but I was having a rough day. I was just feeling unseen. And I felt like I had this task in front of me that feels really impossible sometimes, which is I needed to forgive someone without receiving an, apolo an apology from them, which is just really hard. It's like this person can never give me an apology, will never give me an apology. But yet, I think I have to forgive them just for me to, to continue to function. And so I'm just wrestling with this. And I, and I tell my wife about it, and she says, you know, Fletcher, 80, 90% of what you do will never be noticed by anyone. But God sees it, and he loves you, and he's delighted in those things. And it was through my wife's kind words of truth where she reminded me of our Father's loving kindness toward me. You see, when we speak the truth in love, it is not only to correct, but sometimes we speak the truth in love to comfort. The words of the gospel 
must be on our lips as gospel people. We speak true things in love. But our goal is not just to tell someone how wrong they are, but our goal is always for them to experience the loving kindness of the Savior. There's a way to speak the truth in love where you see your goal as convincing the other person that they are wrong. Sometimes you have to have a little bit of that in your goal. But your goal should always be that they experience the love of Christ to a deeper level. Because the truth is the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news of what God has done for us, that he sent his son to pay our penalty. And that we can forgive without apology because he has forgiven us before we were ever able to issue an apology. Before I uttered the words, God, forgive me for this, he forgave me of many sins. He forgave me of so much. I came to him and said, God, will you please forgive me of my sin? But that did not mean that I stopped sinning. I continued to sin. Although my sin has been completely covered, sometimes I get to the point where I say, God, will you forgive me of this sin that I've been doing for the past 10 years and I didn't even see it until now? And he says, yes, I've already cleansed you of those sins. And so we're called to forgive as he is and love as he loves. Christ came to die for our disobedience so that we might have a relationship with God. Speaking the truth is more than just advice to live. When you boil down Christianity to be just a moral set of principles, our message becomes advice, and our Bible becomes just a set of ethical principles. The Bible is not a set of ethical principles, though. It has some ethical principles in it. The Bible is a story of how God came to save the world. And so when we speak the truth, we don't just give advice on how to live, but we remind one another of the good news of a God who has saved us and who carries us. Speaking the truth in love is the heart of both evangelism and discipleship. We like to think about all these techniques to disciple, things that we need to learn, but friends, it really is just building a relationship and speaking the gospel to one another, reminding one another in each and every situation of the gospel. This is how we grow more like Christ, by cherishing what he has done for us. The Christian life is simply this, coming to a deeper understanding of your need for the good news of Jesus and a deeper understanding of how it applies to every area of your life. That is how you mature as a Christian. You see your need for Jesus in more and more areas. You think less of yourself and more of him, and you're able to apply his completed work to your life in a variety of different ways and fashions. This addresses what we talked about last week with immaturity in so many different ways. By speaking the truth in love to one another, we become less tossed to and fro by the waves of life because we hear the truth of Christ and we become more stable on Him. We build our foundation on Him and not the sinking sands of the world around us. By speaking the truth in love to one another, we become less carried away by every wind of doctrine 
and human cunning. There is a time where we speak the truth and love to one another, where we are correcting doctrine. Because doctrine is important. It matters what you believe. Now, we do that in love. We're not like the doctrine police going around trying to catch people here. But we speak the truth in love because bad doctrine leads to wrong views about God. And what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. It will change the way you live and the way you think. If there is a God who we believe in, wouldn't you want to know as much as you can about what he's really like? And not just some figment of your own imagination, your own creation of who God is. And We don't say, I like to think about God like this. But no, we believe that God has revealed himself to us. And so when we speak the truth, we have to correct false doctrine. Because when we have false doctrine, it leads us to have wrong views of God that are destructive in our life. This is how people are taken advantage of by televangelists. When the televangelist says, give me your money because God has sent me to, on this mission. I need an airplane so I can do this because I'm the only person in the world who can bring the message to these people over here. Well, there's so many different false doctrines that you're hearing in these things that you need to be able to siphon them out. So our doctrine matters tremendously. So we speak the truth to one another. And we speak the truth to one another, we become less deceived by the craftiness of the schemes of Satan. We stop looking for shortcuts to joy and satisfaction. We encourage each other to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. Let's shift here to thinking about how do we practically speak the truth and love to one another. How do we practically do this? Every Christian is called to do this. This isn't something for a special class of Christians. And how do we know that? Because Paul says that the leaders of the church are to equip the saints, all of the saints, every Christian, to do the work of ministry. And then he says that the work of ministry is the speaking the truth in love to one another. There's no way you can get out of this. All of us are called to it. So how do we do it? Everybody is going to have a different style. We're all going to have a different way. I tend to be a little bit more forthright than many people. Some people might not be able to be quite so blunt so quickly. But we're all called to do this. We have these community commitments. We put up a sign every week that has these 10 things that we're committed to as a church. And almost all of them can be traced back to this, this sentence of how do we do this? How do we speak the truth and love to one another? So here are just a few of them. First, we speak good news before good advice. Christianity is not advice to follow, but good news to delight in. So when our friends come to us with a problem, we remember to speak good news before we give good advice. Another one is we start with what's right while we work on what's wrong. So if I have a friend who comes to me, and this, this happens, or a congregant who comes to me, who says, I'm really struggling with pornography. I don't know how to get out of this. Will you help me? I'm going to celebrate that confession, and I'm going to start with what's right. And I'm going to start with, with these ideas. First, it took a lot of courage for you to come to me and talk to me about that. Second, you're surrounded by Christian friends who can help you with this. Third, 
our God is a God who forgives and who is patient and abundantly kind. You see, I'm starting with good news. I'm starting with what's right. Hey, what's right is God doesn't love you any less because you struggle, because you sin, because he loves you like he loves Christ. Now, let's talk about some practical ways for you to turn from this sinful pattern that is in your life. You see, you start with what's right while you work on what's wrong. Third community commitment that I want to highlight is we build up, we don't beat up. Here's a simple truth, and it's a very hard one. I don't confront anyone for me. I confront people for them. Let me tell you where this comes in. When someone's annoying the crap out of me, okay, the kids are upstairs, I'll say crap today. Um, when someone's annoying me, what do I want to do? I want to go and tell them to stop it. Like, here are all the reasons why you're wrong. Stop doing that thing. You're annoying me. But who is that for? It's for me. It's to get this thing. I've got this thing on my chest. You're so wrong. I just got to tell you. and It's going to make me feel better. Sometimes we want to speak the truth to other people because it makes us feel better. But that's not what it says here. It says that we speak the truth in love to one another so that we might be built up, so that we might grow. We might grow. And so when we build up, we don't beat up. Sometimes that means that when you see that someone is doing something and it's annoying you, because oftentimes sin is annoying, you might need to take a minute and pray for that person. Because you know God can... God can fix that in their lives without you? Isn't that a great reality, that God can fix things in other people's lives without you? But sometimes he calls you to speak the truth in love to them. So after you take a moment to pray about it, you cannot speak the truth in love with people, usually when you're angry. It's a very challenging thing to do. Take a moment, get the log out of your own eye, Think about how you can do this in a way that builds up but doesn't beat up. If someone has sinned against you, I'd encourage you to take a minute or two, take a day or two, get the log out of your own eye, and then go to that person and speak the truth in love only when you can do it for that person's good. Now, if you have sinned against someone else, stop right then and go and ask for their forgiveness. You see, it's different. It's different when someone sinned against you versus you sinned against someone else. If you've sinned against someone else and you realize that, just go to them at that moment. We build up. We don't beat up. We speak with gentleness. Galatians 6, helpful, helpful here. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should, or mature, you could think about it like that, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What? But keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. See, no one is above this. And we do it with the spirit of gentleness. We build up. We don't beat up. Another one, confession takes courage. We don't cringe. When someone confesses a sin to us, Christ has already paid for that sin, so there's no reason to cringe. We can thank them for their boldness, for their courage, and encourage them. Another one, one degree of change is still change and worth celebrating. This means that sometimes we have to be more patient with our friends than what we would like. You may never, if you speak the truth in love to people, 
you may never get to see the fruit that your words provide in that person's life. I had a friend 10 years ago who told me, Fletcher, you have, you have a tendency to drop truth bombs on people. And I think it wasn't until this week when I was like, ah, forgive me, Lord. It took me that long to see what he's trying to say. But it was still important. It was part of my journey. And so as we speak the truth in love to one another, we can't expect to see the fruit. How they receive it, that's up to them. You can only handle your side of the street. You have to do it gently gently, and in love, but they have to receive it in their own way. There's this old movie uh, called, uh, I'm guessing that 50% of you have seen this, given the demographics of our church, Braveheart. Have you seen Braveheart? Okay. That's roughly 50%. Okay. Um, Older movie, early 90s, okay, for those of you who can remember the early 90s. And it stars uh, Mel Gibson playing the Scottish hero, William Wallace. He paints his face half blue. You've probably seen commercials or something if you haven't seen the movie. He paints his face half blue. He's this, this, this warrior. He's going to fight England. And at one point in the movie, William Wallace meets this um, psychotic Irishman named, uh, Irishman named uh, Stephen, all right? And there's really no way to describe him other than crazy. I mean, this guy's crazy. He's obviously crazy. He's hearing voices. He's speaking, he's speaking back to the voices. It, it's, it's not a good situation. But William Wallace is short on men, and so he decides to take the crazy Irish person into his army and allow him to fight alongside him. And so one of the very next scenes is William Wallace out in the woods. He's hunting. He's got his bow and arrow drawn, and he's about to shoot a deer or some type of animal like that, some woodland creature. Um, And he looks over, and he sees the crazy Irish guy running at him with a sword drawn, just like, I mean, he looks like he's he's just ready to kill him. And so he's like, oh, no, I should have never let this guy into my into my, my troop here, right? And so he turns and he pulls the bow and arrow as he's shooting, at, at, to shoot at the Irish guys he's running at him. But he doesn't shoot fast enough because the next thing he sees is the Irishman throwing a sword straight at him. But what we know as the viewers that William didn't know at that moment is that the Irish guy saw an assassin on the other side of William Wallace. And he wasn't throwing the sword at William Wallace He was throwing the sword at the assassin behind William Wallace. When our friends come to us trying to speak truth and love, trying to care for us the best they can, oftentimes we see them like the crazed Irish person coming at us when they're really trying to kill the enemy within, the enemy that is behind us. They're trying to take out one of the schemes of the evil one. And so we'll pull our bow back at them, being defensive, But friends, let me tell you something. We have to trust one another. As we speak the truth in love, we come with trust. So let me end with this. How do you receive the truth spoken to you in love? As people are coming to you, speaking the truth in love, how do you receive it? First, you have to recognize that whatever they're saying to you could not be worse than what you already believe about yourself in the cross. You believe that God had to send his own son, that your sin was so bad that God had to send his own son to die on the cross for you. 
you're, you weren't a good person. You, you didn't have your act together. God had to send his son to die for you. So therefore, anything that they're saying is not any worse than what you already know about yourself. There's always a hint of truth in any criticism. So you just try to take it for what it is. And if you reject everything they have to say, at least it's a moment to have some humility and evaluate your life. But you also can hear people when they come to you recognizing that whatever someone says to you, whatever they've caught you in, whatever they're trying to help you with, could not affect the way that God sees you. It cannot affect the way that God sees you. Because we believe that Christ's work for us is complete. And that God doesn't love us based upon what we've done, but what Christ has done. So his completed work covering over us, and that's all God sees. He is delighted in us because he is delighted in Christ. And so whatever criticism you might bring to me, it doesn't affect my final identity before the Lord. I can hear that because Christ is enough for me. And I can also see it as an opportunity for me to mature and to grow. I love the way that Pastor Tim Keller says it. I have not always given him credit when I've said this line, but today he certainly gets the credit. Uh, this, this is one that just always rings true. It says, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Fantastic. The gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Friends, we speak the truth and love to one another because that is the way that God grows and matures his church, because he cares for us. We're going to turn our attention now to a time of communion. And with this time of communion, we get an opportunity to evaluate ourselves. Is there some truth that's been spoken to you this week that you need to hear in a new kind of light, that you need to receive? Is there someone that you need to lovingly speak the truth of the gospel to? They may not like it, but you have no control of that. But it may be the thing that brings them the most life. Evaluate your life, evaluate your community. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a, a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And each week we remember what he has done for us by eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. We're declaring that we are one with Christ. That he is our sacrifice. Let's pray, church. God, we thank you for uh, this, this word of truth that you've given us. We pray that your church will be built up and encouraged by it. God, you are so kind to us. More patient than what we deserve more loving than what we could ever be. And Father, I pray that you help us to respond uh, to this, this gospel and message, uh, that you will build, be grow, building up your church and growing us. Help us to each be equipped for this work of ministry. As we take this meal, help us to celebrate what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.